0: Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Carolyn, Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. The holiday season is over, but it is still candle season. Have you ever stopped to think about what ingredients are in a candle? Have you ever seen a candle with the ingredients on its label? Most likely you haven't. The Fair Packaging and Labeling Act gives fragrance manufacturers a trade secret status so they legally do not have to share their ingredients with you. Synthetic fragrance can contain up to 3,000 different chemicals, some of which are endocrine disruptors and respiratory irritants. Some even contain chemicals that are known carcinogens. If you do not want to give up candles forever, I have a swap for you. I love Fontana Candle Company for their 100% natural and independently Certified Non-Toxic Candles, Wax Melts, and Room Sprays. They use only pure beeswax, coconut oil, and essential oils in their candles. And they put all of their ingredients right on the label. Fontana was the first candle to be certified non-toxic by Made Safe. I love that they have my favorite seasonal scents like cinnamon, orange, clove, peppermint twist, and spice latte. Use code podcast at fontanacandlecompany.com for 15% off your order. Again, use code PODCAST. Dr. Will Cole is a leading functional medicine expert who specializes in clinically investigating underlying factors of chronic disease and customizing a functional medicine approach for thyroid issues, autoimmune conditions, hormonal imbalances, digestive disorders, and more. He is the host of the Art of Being Well podcast and author of Ketotarian, The Inflammation Spectrum, and the New York Times bestseller, Intuitive Fasting. Welcome to the show, everyone. Today, I am really excited to have our guest, and I feel very honored that he wants to be on our show. It's Dr. Will Cole. And like his bio said, he is just an amazing doctor teaching so much great information out on social media. And he has a podcast that is always in the top charts. Which a lot of times, Dr. Cole, I'm just trying to beat you in the podcast charts. Just kidding. Um, but anyways, we are really excited to have you today. So thank you, Dr. Cole, for taking the time to be here.
1: Thank you so much. I, I told you, my team and I are such fans of yours. We go over case reviews every morning at the telehealth center and. Uh the whole team was envious of me being able to talk with you. I, I don't look at the podcast charts. I, I I'm better off to not know. I don't really <laughs>
0: <laughs> You know I what honestly, honestly, I don't look at them very often either. It's I'm on here just trying to educate people, but yeah. my nieces love to look and so they always tell me what's yeah, going on. I know. So. <laughs> Once you hear about it
1: from people, then it gets like, oh, where are we at? <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> Well, thank you for being here. Will you tell my listeners just a little bit about yourself, your background, how you got involved yeah. in the medical industry, things like that?
1: Yeah. So I always grew up, I grew up always loving health and wellness. My first job, I worked at the finish line, you know, the, the tennis shoe sneaker mm. store. It's oh, yeah. 16 years old. I had my first job there and I used my paycheck to go to the health food store and buy the latest like superfood that I read about and the, the latest supplement or herb that I read about. So I was always, I was a weird kid in hindsight that I thought that was cool. And I'd pack my lunches in these brown paper bags with like bell peppers that I just like rip out and eat, eat it, like eat a whole bell pepper or eat tomatoes or eat whatever just the snap peas, not what most 16 year olds. Are doing.
0: I I was going to say, my 16 year olds are not doing that.
1: (laughs) Let alone, yeah, in the 90s, certainly in Western Pennsylvania, where I'm from. So, anyways, so that's where that's who you're talking to is that sort of weird health nerd. And that kind of evolved to me wanting to be formally trained in this. So, I went to an integrative medicine school called Southern California University of Health Sciences, which is outside of LA in Whittier. And I just am passionate about functional medicine. So, I graduated we started the first functional medicine telehealth center in the world over 13 years ago at this point. So basically I haven't really left this room in 13 years other than see my wife and kids in the evening, but Mm -hmm. I just, I love what I do. I'm kind of obsessed about it in a good way, but I'm passionate for my patients to hold space for people that are going through heavy things. And um, yeah, so that's, that's my day job. And then I write, I write books about this stuff as well. I have the podcast, but it's all Ripple effects. The books and the podcasts are just ripple effects of my immersion in my patient cases and figuring out these complex issues.
0: Well, I love what you teach on social media. I actually didn't realize you did telehealth. So my listeners will love knowing that you do that. Um, mm-hmm. but on social media, I know you talk about a wide variety of topics, but one that you've talked about often before is the gut-brain connection, which I've talked about that a lot as well, but I've always talked about it with food. And I know that you talk about it with physiological factors like emotions, stress, trauma, things like that. So that's where I want to go with our topic today. At least start with that. So maybe give the um, listeners just a little bit of background of what the gut-brain connection is. And then maybe some of the top physiological disruptors to the gut-brain connection.
1: Sure. So there's, I mean, just to touch on it. Uh, and we'll get right into the deeper stuff. So your gut and brain are formed from the same fetal tissue. So when babies are growing in their mother's womb, they're growing from that same tissue in utero, and they're inextricably linked for the rest of our life through what's known as the gut-brain axis or the connection between the gut and the brain. I mean, 95% of serotonin, our happy neurotransmitter is made in the gut and stored in the gut. 50% of dopamine is made in the gut and stored in the gut. Uh, So, if, even if you think about it physically, like just the way resembling the gut, the intestines resemble the brain in many ways too. And there's, there's, there's a reason for that, right? All of these reasons, there's far reaching implications of that. And about 75% of the immune system is made in the gut. Inflammation is a product of the immune system. So there's a lot of brain health connections in the scientific literature, looking at this neuroinflammatory component. So beyond the neurotransmitter, component. It is this inflammatory component that can impact how the brain is signaling. So the crosstalk between the gut and the brain and the brain and the gut this bi-directional relationships at the heart of a lot of different problems when you're talking about things like anxiety and depression and brain fog and fatigue from a mental health standpoint, but then this larger inflammatory component beyond just the mental health side of things. But when you're looking at the world of autoimmunity, which those are the two Things that I see clinically the most is is autoimmune inflammation issues, and then brain health issues like anxiety and depression and fatigue, and then the downstream effect of that is endocrine problems, you know, hormonal problems for many people. There's at least a hormonal component to this conversation, which will further exacerbate uh, symptoms, right? It'll flare up, make symptoms worse. So that's the heart of many people people's issues, but they don't they don't realize it that the they don't necessarily have to have extreme or overt digestive symptoms to have underlying gut components to why they feel the way that they do. Many people will say, "Yeah, maybe I'm a little bloated, maybe a little bit constipated. Maybe I have IVF sometimes." But it's down on the list of things that are really, you know, ailing them or impacting their quality of life. They they may think I I, I anxiety is my issue or fatigue is my issue, but really the upstream root issue for many people is is an underlying gut component, at least a component of it, if not a huge component of, of it for many people.
0: Okay, let me ask you really quick before we go to physiological factors about that, because I will talk to people all the time about depression, anxiety. And when I say maybe it's a gut-brain connection issue, or maybe it's a gut issue, a lot of people will respond with, no, my gut is just fine. I have no symptoms. Like, I yeah. digest just fine. But is that really true? Like, how do people know if they have gut issues if they don't think they're feeling anything?
1: Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, I, a lot of things can be uncovered when you realize that just because something's common doesn't necessarily mean it's normal. Like, Just because it's something's there every day, many people will normalize that because that's all they know, right? They've been dealing with this, dealing with these things for years, maybe, of their life, or they get, still live their life. They're not like tied to the bathroom, so they think that's normal, um but normal on the bristol chart if you're talking about normal bowel movements it's one to two snakes a day as we call it so that's the normal bowel movement formation so many people will go every two days every three days sometimes and they think well that's normal because their regular is every two to three days well if you're eating food that's not a good sign that you're that's a that's a check engine light that something's not right there or it's always unformed or it's always you there's bloating every day of your life there's nausea indigestion every day of your life and you think well it's pretty normal because you just take the tums and everything's fine and no these are these are telltale signs that something's off here that's just the digestive issues let alone all the downstream inflammatory symptoms that people can be having too. So to your, to your second part of your question is that that's really the topic of my, fourth, my newest book called Gut Feelings. It's talking about the physiological and the psychological, the gut and the feelings, the physical and then the mental, emotional, spiritual component and how the interplay between both Need to be looked at when you're talking about autoimmune inflammation issues and brain health problems. Because in the West, we will oftentimes separate mental health from physical health, but mental health is physical health. Our brain is a part of our body, just like anything else. And a both and approach to this conversation is really how people will find healing. And it's either or, like it's. In the mental health space, it's it's relegated to sort of this obscure, abstract, quote-unquote, chemical imbalance, which has, we know, now it turns out, is flimsy science at best. But even if you take that model, what's causing the chemical imbalance? Oftentimes, it's inflammation that's causing any signaling issue when you're talking about hormones or neurotransmitters. But then on the physical side, when you're talking about autoimmune issues and mental health issues, we often will ignore the, what I call these metaphysical meals that people serve themselves every day. Like the things like chronic stress and shame and trauma and even intergenerational trauma and talking about the science about that in the book, these mental, emotional, spiritual things, research shows can be literally stored in ourselves, impacting inflammation levels just as much as that food that doesn't love you back, just as much as that, you know, uh, fast food, et cetera. So these are things that are complex to unpack, but are important if people want to find healing. So
0: interesting. Okay, so that's what I want to talk to you about today. So let's uh, maybe start with trauma. So how does unresolved trauma manifest in the body? Is it in the gut?
1: The gut's a major part of that because the gut and brain are formed from the same field tissue. A lot of the research is really looking at two things, uh, is really... The autonomic nervous system is a part of that. and That's our main regulatory system of our nervous system. And we have two main branches there, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. The sympathetic is the fight or flight, more stress response, very important part of the human nervous system. And then we have the parasympathetic, which is the resting, the digesting, the hormone balanced, chilled out aspect of the autonomic nervous system. They both are important. But the problem is most people are in varying degrees of sympathetic overactivation meaning there's a dysregulation between the two main branches of the autonomic nervous system most people are stuck in varying degrees of, of that sympathetic fight or flight and their parasympathetic is weaker it is not toned and the vagus nerve is the largest cranial nerve in the body it translates from the word, which means wandering. It's sort of the wandering nerve that innervates between the gut and the brain and the brain and the gut, this bi-directional relationship between the second brain, our gut, and the first brain. So the parasympathetic nervous system is weak in many ways, like a muscle that's that's weak and not been toned the same is goes with the parasympathetic nervous system, largely the vagus nerve so the 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 what researchers refer to as poor vagal tone will show up in a wide variety of different health problems mm-hmm. like autoimmune problems like anxiety, depression, people that have chronic fatigue syndrome, different inflammatory problems, digestive problems um and foods will and I, you mentioned you talk about this in the show a lot a lot of what, the foods that will disrupt the microbiome and raise inflammation will perpetuate that sympathet- sympathetic overactivation and that like a seesaw, that sympathetic is being further activated and the parasympathetic is further weakened and inhibited. But so too, just as foods and physiological, i.e., the gut stuff, will contribute to that in in imbalance, that dysregulation, so too will these. Less prescriptive things like chronic stress and trauma, these harder things to unpack, but are important, pivotally important, um, will perpetuate that. So it has to do with the autonomic nervous system, parasympathetic, which is really the gut brain axis, the major part of that gut brain axis. And then there's another subset of researchers looking at trauma specifically in what's called something called methylation. Methylation is this big interconnected myriad of different pathways that are responsible for regulating inflammation, regulating how neurotransmitters are expressed, impacting the way the body detoxes largely, and methylation can be impacted from trauma, not just the trauma that we experience in our life, but as I talk about in Gut Feelings, how this field of research looking at intergenerational or transgenerational trauma can impact how our genes are expressed, or the field of epigenetics, how Thing our experience, not just our experience, but our ancestors' experience will influence how our health is today.
0: So interesting. Okay. I have a lot of questions about things that you just said. Because I'm I'm thinking that listeners are wondering, well, how do I know if I have a weak parasympathetic nervous system? Like, are there signs? Are there symptoms? How would they know?
1: Well, the first thing would be looking at those symptoms, sort of the check box of things that i mentioned earlier like looking at their digestion looking at their energy levels looking at different inflammatory signs of inflammation levels in the body looking at your mental health like anxiety and depression looking at are you diagnosed with if you're diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome if you're diagnosed with an autoimmune condition if you're diagnosed with anxiety and depression that's more an obvious sign that vagus nerve is uh, supporting the vagus nerve is going to be at least a component to improving your health. And, um, so I actually, uh, it's interesting that you asked that I adapted questions that I ask questions uh, for patients. I, I basically took what I would ask a patient and adapted it for people in a quiz, um, that I put on drwillcool.com. It's not in the book. It's a kind of a complimentary to gut feeling. So people can go to drwillcole.com and measure that gut feeling connection, which is just, again, questionnaires that I would normally ask a patient at a telehealth consult that I wanted people to just get an idea of what where their health may be. An aspect of, the, of that questionnaire, which I, again, tailored it, it's a bit different, but has to do with something called the ACE score, the adverse childhood experience score. That's just one part of it. Childhood is just one part of it. But um What we've gone through earlier on in our life, looking at our childhood of, was there physical abuse growing up? Was there sexual abuse growing up? Was there substance abuse in the home growing up? Was there mental illness, unchecked mental illness in the home with parents growing up? The higher the A score, research has shown people are more likely to have different autoimmune issues later in life, a hypervigilant nervous system, i.e. feeling that sort of wired and tired, anxious, but exhausted different metabolic issues, even like type 2 diabetes. Um, So that's one aspect of it, is really just asking yourself these questions of seeing these are subjective questions to ask yourself. And the higher you are with these scores, research shows you're more likely to have these dysregulated nervous system issues. And part of that is vagal tone.
0: Okay, that's good to know. So listeners, go to his website, take his questionnaire, so I have a question though. If someone has a dysregulated system, can they strengthen their vagus nerve? Are there like things they can do, and can anyone do them? I mean, if you don't have a dysregulated uh, nervous system, can you do them as well?
1: Yeah, and they, all of these things exist on a spectrum, right? I mean, some people—the end stage of a dysregulated nervous system—is something called dysautonomia. or Dysautonomia—it's a—it's the b- person's body is perpetually stuck in the sympathetic. It's diagnosable there's like diagnostic codes for this and it's it's a specific medical condition, so to speak. But that's just one end of a larger continuum of dysregulation of the nervous system. There are many, countless people, I would say m- most of the human race today because if we're living out of alignment with our, there's a genetic epigenetic mismatch is how researchers refer to it as. And that's contributing that mismatch, meaning our, the way we're living our life is different the way that our ancestors would have, and our genetics haven't changed in ten thousand years. So we're kind of living incongruent to that, which is perpetuating this larger dysregulation of not just the human nervous system and impacting the vagus nerve and the parasympathetic, but it's also dysregulating the human immune system in the form of chronic inflammation. So, yes, there's there's so much you can do. There's so much we can do. That's really the heart of my work is really supporting that parasympathetic and calming inflammation to regulate the nervous system and the immune system, respectively. Um, and if, in lieu of not you know, not having a functional medicine doctor, that's why I write books. So people can, no matter where you're at in your health journey, you can start having agency over your health and get access to these things either for free or at a lo- very low cost when you're talking about podcasts and books. So, um, yeah, it's it's. I want everybody to be empowered with this information because many people, when I'm talking about these sort of somber statistics of trauma and, you know, these are when you're talking about especially childhood trauma, these are things before we even had a say on whether we had it or not. Like this wasn't a choice to most of us. But research is very clear. That just as trauma can be inherited, just as you can get trauma and and pass trauma through generations, so can healing be passed on through generations. So I see people all the time breaking the chains of dysfunction, disease, dysregulation in their body, but not just for themselves, but their families and generations that they'll never get to see. So that while this is heavy stuff to talk about, the body's amazingly resilient. And I talk about the research in the book. There's really so much we can do to reclaim our health.
0: So I have a question though about trauma for you because sometimes I'll talk about trauma to people and people will say, but what is trauma? Because some will say that's only like sexual abuse or really extreme things where others are like, no, it could just be, you know, something as simple as a little neglect or something. So how do we define trauma? Because people are like, did I grow up in trauma? I don't know.
1: And I think that something like the A score, if you're talking about childhood trauma, and obviously things can happen later on in life, too, that we have to talk about. But I mean, if you're talking about specifically just childhood trauma, it's not it's not always the big, egregious, obvious stuff. Right. And that's part of the gaslighting that I think that people do to themselves is that they'll say they'll always look at someone worse off than them. Which, as far as gratitude, I do find there's a place for that, right? I mean, it's, it's being thankful for the things we do have in life, but I think it can get to a sort of pathological, toxic level when you're talking about medically gaslighting your own yourself. And I feel like many people do because we can always find something worse off. It doesn't make what we've gone through any less. And everybody has their own set of resilience levels too. So, that's bioindividuality, which is the main part of what I do in functional medicine. And, like, the analogy that we use for patients is like the bucket theory, right? If some people have big buckets, some people have smaller buckets. That's your genetic tolerance for stressors. Some people can smoke and drink and stay up late and have lots of trauma, and it's not going to express itself in their health right here and now not to say they're going to get away with it but normally those things happen later on in life and it's cumulative till they hit that tipping point and sometimes it people to have that bigger bandwidth to handle stressors it takes a lot to hit that tipping point until symptoms arise and something happens in their health and in their life some people have smaller buckets some people have gone through just enough trauma for them To really be a component to why they feel the way that they do today but it's important to know it's not just about the trauma it's a lot of other variables too so maybe you did go through relatively lower amounts of trauma maybe your a score is on the lower side of things right maybe it's some neglect I, I, i hear a lot of patients like latchkey kids that that like basically a single parent they were left to fend for themselves That's still on the A score. That wasn't necessarily massive physical abuse. It wasn't sexual abuse, but it still was neglect, which is contributing to your A score but it's not just about trauma. It's the trauma plus these other things. It's the gut and the feeling stuff. So what can we, what do we have agency over? It's dealing with that trauma is a piece of that person's puzzle, but it's not the only piece of their puzzle. We have to deal with the other components as well. So I think it's important. I think that's why the, the questionnaire, the quiz that I was talking about is so important because I think it can illuminate things that we normalize in our mind for so long and then realize, look, yes, that's maybe not the only piece of my puzzle. Maybe I didn't have the biggest trauma in the world, but for me to say it's nothing is, uh, sometimes too, a little bit too cavalier and really just us gaslighting ourselves.
0: Oh, I love how you said all of that because it really is just a piece to the puzzle and healing is a puzzle that we're trying to figure out all these different pieces to. And I talk a lot about the food component, but, um, trauma definitely can be a part of that healing. Okay. You mentioned intergenerational trauma and healing. But what is that exactly? Like, I know it's passed on from generation to generation, but how?
1: So it's basically a chemical imprint uh, that happens in the sperm and in the egg when babies are formed. It's a chemical imprint that is passed from generation to generation impacting methylation and partly how your nervous system and nervous system is regulating. So the, the human nervous system and immune system, i.e., our brain gut brain axis and the way the inflammation is expressed is coded from in part from this chemical imprint that's that parents like an epigenetic heirloom pass passes from to, the, to their kids and then their kids to the next generation if they don't break that cycle so the um there're many studies done on this uh, this field uh, in, both in my, mouse models when you're talking about intergenerational trauma but also in human studies as well. Um, different world geopolitical um, co- collective traumas, let's let's call it that, um, have been looked at, both from the Rwandan genocide when you're looking at the the Tutsi people, the Hutus and the Tutsis, and w- what happened during the Rwandan genocide that these this complex PTSD was passed on through multiple generations. There was the a Ukrainian genocide in the early 20th century History repeats itself in many ways. Anytime the Ukrainian people wanted to have independence, the the Russian government came and squashed that. This was in the 1920s, I believe. Joseph Stalin came in when the Ukrainians tried to have independence and created a man-made famine, and then he would would agree that it's a gen- was a genocide of the Ukrainian people and researchers looked at the descendants two three generations down from people who expe- experienced that man-made famine had the same chemical imprint passed down um it, wh- how that manifests is things like hypervigilant nervous system people having you know panic attacks anxiety ptsd P- ptsd type symptoms that didn't go through the genocide but were expressing as if they did go through the genocide, and uh, autoimmune problems, metabolic issues, things like that. And then, of course, uh, similar studies were done on the Holocaust in Germany and Poland, same thing, two, three generations down, had these same methylation variants because of the chemical imprint from their ancestors. So many people then ask me, well, how do you know if it's a generational trauma? We don't really have to know it to heal. But Let me say that more carefully. Sometimes knowing it is a part of the healing, for sure, because I think it's part of the catharsis. I think it's part of the letting go and somatically metabolizing this. I think sometimes the knowingness does help a different layer. I'm not saying all this to stress people out, but just if anything, to empower people to realize this is the agency that we wield. And As I said earlier, as trauma can be inherited, so can healing. There is one mouse study that I'm aware of that- that once the researchers removed the stressor for the mice, their descendants didn't have the chemical imprint anymore. Meaning there is evidence to point the fact that we can break that cycle through our choices today. Um, so this is really a message of empowerment to say, what can I do today? We all were all dealt different cards, some of us way more than others, but what can we do to break that cycle? And and I think also a level of empathy and grace and forgiveness on ourselves that maybe it wasn't all it's not just our lack of willpower are we just are lacking resilience sometimes we were born in this world with some heavy stuff that we need to to untangle
0: that is all really fascinating stuff and makes me even want to go study like my family history from like third fourth generations just to sort of see what they went through because maybe i mean i struggled with mental health years ago and i've gone through a huge healing process but i'm like was there something generational that was passed down who knows so that's really fascinating okay so you talk about somatic practices is this to help with that intergenerational healing
1: it is in many ways and you will see whether it's you know trauma that people have experienced in their own life or it's part of that is the intergenerational transgenerational trauma you'll see people cathartically cry or if you think of the the classic example of the yoga class, right, many people that listen to pot, you know, most people have experienced yoga yoga to some degree. And almost every yoga teacher I've heard will say, when they do the hip openers, people tend to cry. Well, that's a somatic practice of stored trauma that's being released. And people don't even know why they're crying. So I had to think, intergenerational trauma is probably a part of that, if not things that they in their own life have repressed and forgotten and thought it wasn't a big deal, quote unquote. Again, that medical gaslighting of ourselves, we can start to release that um, during different somatic practices, of which yoga is one that's been well-researched to be one to to metabolize that stored trauma, to metabolize that unresolved stored trauma. And um, that's not the only example of it. So in the book, I really put together a protocol of the tools that I've seen be the most effective to deal with both the gut and the feelings of this gut feeling conversation, the interplay between physical health and mental health. And there's 21 uh, gut action items or tools, and there's 21 uh, feeling action items or tools. So there's 42 total that people can explore. Not that they have to do all 42. That's not what's necessary. But I want them to explore, look at what the research says, see what resonates with you, because it's being consistent with the things that are resonating with you that you find to be effective, over time is really what you'll see being the needle mover for you so different somatic practices beyond yoga tai chi would be another one that's very well researched drumming dancing tapping like literally tapping your body with your hands these are all um very well researched to be a way to clear stored trauma Um, but there are many other ones beyond that but those are some that come to mind
0: Well, I love that energy work, I feel like, is becoming more acceptable. And I know energy work can really deal with trapped emotions, things like that. Okay, so I do want to ask you then about stress and the gut, because you say chronic stress is the ultimate junk food. So Mm -hmm. is it just destroying our gut, just like junk food, I'm assuming?
1: It is. It is. It is definitely... It's more nebulous, right? Because it's, it's easy for me to say... X, Y, and Z foods are gonna you know, disrupt your microbiome, raise inflammation levels. And people will just have less of those foods and focus on the foods that love you back. And I talk a lot about that in the book because it's obviously the gut side of gut feelings. But the feeling side is really important, but not so prescriptive, because you can't really say don't stress, or then they stress about not stressing. Or you can't say don't have that shame, have less of that, uh, don't have that trauma, have less of that. That's not gonna work, It just it's not helpful at all, and it's not the way that life works. So to unpack and to not consume those junk foods for the soul t- takes time, but it's retraining your nervous system. It's retraining your limbic system, retraining your nervous system to start to calibrate into more of a regulated state where the parasympathetic and the sympathetic can live in harmony and not one being more accentuated than the other. But it's it's certainly an important part of healing for many people. Um, and when you're talking about chronic stress specifically, it is really even more insidious because our culture is so hell-bent on you know, almost glorifying stress, right? It's like we have this go, go, go culture. Uh, where I talk about in the book, like the toxic perfectionism, where it's just this hustle culture, burnout is a badge of honor. And uh, that's really normalized in many ways, where it's just so common. It's our everyday that it's normalized. And um, it's really for all of us, depending on our resilience, some people can handle more stress than others, as I mentioned earlier. But ultimately, it's for our own selves, not comparing ourselves to everybody else, but our own selves. Am I intuitively, do I intuitively know this is a piece of the puzzle? This, this constant fight or flight stress state is at least a contributing factor to my health. Um, and it's, involves tools that I talk about in the book, like healthy boundaries are really important. Whereas I talk (laughs) this topic of JOMO that I talk a lot about in social media that I extensively talk about in the book, it's the antithesis of FOMO culture, the fear of missing out. It's the joy of missing out or JOMO culture of really cultivating this in your life of just maybe unplugging the TV, turning off your smartphone, turning off notifications, uninstalling some apps, unfollowing people on social media that are kind of perpetuating that comparison FOMO, uh, I'm not good enough mentality. All of this stuff is cumulatively contributing to that chronic stress state, which is perpetuating that autonomic nervous system dysregulation.
0: So besides like unplugging things, trying to slow down, do you have other ways to help the parasympathetic and sympathetic um, balance each other out a little bit more?
1: Yeah, I mean, Uh, the uh, healthy boundaries are huge to kind of go really go through what's my relationship with work what's, what's my relationship with my friend circle what's my relationship with with myself with food all of these healthy boundaries are extremely important breath work is one that i find to be extremely helpful for chronic stress so there's some things You know when you're dealing with any sort of external stressor maybe it's work maybe it's family maybe it's some sort of life situation we can either change it leave it or accept it we have to choose one of those Uh, if you don't choose one of those you're going to be creating inner resistance i.e raising that sympathetic fight-or-flight stress state for yourself not everybody can leave a situation not everybody can change a situation. Sometimes there's a place for radical acceptance, and maybe it won't always be the case, but for now in my life, I have to be in radical acceptance. How do we get in radical acceptance? I think that's where breath work and meditation really come in. You can start to transmute that inner resistance into a state of radical acceptance. And it's just that. It's radical because it's, you know, as the Bible set calls it, the peace that passes all understanding. I think that's a good way of describing radical upset acceptance because it doesn't make sense to the human rationale. It's insane in some ways. But people I've seen this play out in patients' lives all the time. People that are up against the most seemingly insurmountable situation have this sort of space of grace around themselves, where you could justify everything for for, for them why you should be upset about this, why you should be anxious about this, why you should be stressed about this, but they're not. But they're the ones that are consistent with this inner work, or so as I call it in the book, these acts of stillness, these exercises of stillnesses, uh, these exercises of stillness, like breathwork. So I talk about from beginner to more advanced breathwork practices that have been shown in the research to really be good at clearing out the stress and keeping almost like a nervous system exercise, toning uh, exercise to keep the nervous system more into that balanced state. And their, 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 their situation externally doesn't even change. So sometimes the external situation needs to change. So if you can change or leave it, then maybe you need to do that. But there are some situations people can't change. So that's where the breath work can really be helping. So the holotropic breath work is one that comes to mind where I talk about it in the book, but it's more advanced breath work, but it's a really, it, the research of holotropic breath work came out of the research of psychedelics and how humans could endogenously recreate things in the brain, meaning that they didn't have to take ayahuasca or psilocybin. They could actually recreate certain centers of the brain to clear out stress and trauma from our own breath endogenously. Mm. So it's almost these meditative medicinal states that is entirely from the brain. Uh, and um, we can allow this that a really, and that's one way to do it. There are many more like mainstream breath work practices that I talk about in the book and with patients that are also really good at being a game changer where the external situation doesn't even change, but they're flexing that mindfulness muscle. So they really have this sort of resilience about themselves that the things that used to rattle them doesn't rattle them as much.
0: Wow. I love everything you said, and I love the change it or leave it or accept it. I already was thinking of certain situations where I was like, oh, I am going to apply that. So thank you for all of that. And I'm excited for your book and for people to read it. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But tell me about adaptogens. Do you like adaptogens for stress?
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, th- this is uh, you know, something I'm, I'm sure you talked a lot about, but these adaptogens are plant Food, like plant let's just say herbal medicines uh, plants that have been used for thousands of years around the globe no matter where your ancestors are from they probably use an adaptogen that was local or indigenous to their area so you have things like ashwagandha rhodiola uh, you have things like uh, holy basil or tulsi maca um, different medicinal mushrooms like lion's mane or chaga have some adaptogenic qualities as well to even something like pearl, like actually ground up pearl powder, has has some adaptogenic qualities that's been was used in traditional Chinese medicine for that purpose. So there's a lot of examples around the world that have been used, uh, and they have some commonalities. Like adaptogens are have a modulating effect. They help to balance your body's hormones, mainly around the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. They're your main endocrine stress response. How does cortisol, how is the cortisol secreted throughout the day? And you normally need this nice S-shaped circadian rhythm throughout the day where cortisol is higher in the morning and this nice S-shaped curve through the evening. And that's inversely proportional to melatonin, serotonin made in the gut, mostly converted into melatonin, our sleepy time neurotransmitter. It goes high as cortisol goes down and that's our sleep-wake cycle. Most people and I look at labs all day long, will have dysregulated circadian rhythm and their sleep-wake cycle is off. Melatonin's really low, cortisol's high when it should be low and then low when it should be high. There's That's endocrine dysregulation. But hormones are biochemical emails, right? There, there's a reason why those emails are being sent, those chemical messengers are being sent. There's, there's normally a larger nervous system and inflammatory component to why hormones are the way that they are but adaptogens are a tool within the toolbox to modulate that stress response, supporting that brain adrenal or the brain thyroid or the brain ovarian axis. Um, So yeah, I talk a lot about it in the book because these are tools to support that gut feeling connection and improve your body's resilience to stress. So it's on the gut of the gut feeling dichotomy. That is definitely something on a physical level to improve your mental, emotional health.
0: Love that. So you're saying that people's hormones being off can be due to emotional stress trauma all of that stuff and the gut really it's not necessarily just hormone based they need to go fix their gut issues
1: yeah yeah exactly and look it's it's always the conversation with patients is the chicken or the egg like what came first but because the body's interconnected It's not to say that the chicken, i.e. in this one example, i.e. the hormones, are not contributing to symptoms. They they are. If your cortisol is off, it's going to further exacerbate symptoms. If your testosterone is low, if your estrogen is high, if if your estrogen and progesterone ratio is imbalanced, all of that's going to contribute to symptoms for sure. So it's still going to be a piece of the puzzle, but ultimately for most people, Hormonal imbalances don't happen in a vacuum. Like there's a larger context as to why these things are off in the first place. Obviously, perimenopause is one example where that's a life shift that happens to every woman, but not every woman has perimenopausal. Uh, symptoms, just like when you talk about the normal menstrual cycle, not every woman has PMS symptoms. So, but all women that are cycling have these fluctuations. So if it's just the hormonal fluctuations, why don't every woman have the same symptoms? That's because Mm -hmm. these things don't happen in a vacuum. There's a larger variables to consider like inflammation, like the gut brain axis, like these other things we've been talking about in this conversation that are also at play that are interplaying with estrogen and progesterone's fluctuations, whether that be through perimenopause or through a normal menstrual cycle. So um, yes, oftentimes, I'll give you an example real fast, is cortisol. Cortisol is not inherently bad, right? It, it's, 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 it's needed to regulate blood sugar and blood pressure, but it's also an endogenous immunosuppressant, meaning it's a natural anti-inflammatory. So in states of inflammation, you will often see cortisol to be higher in people. Uh, and then they think, okay, that's bad. Well, it's not necessarily bad. It's a normal human response to try to create homeostasis. So the goal isn't to necessarily suppress cortisol. But the goal is to improve your body's resilience to stress, but then ultimately ask, well, what's stressing out your body in the first place, both the gut and the feelings pieces to the puzzle have to be looked at, meaning the gut side, like physical underlying gut problems, chronic inflammation, it's going to stress your body out raise inflammation levels up, cortisol's job is to help, help calm that down, but also the stress and the trauma piece will keep the body more of an inflamed state, which will cause the endocrine system to respond accordingly. So these are the larger things to unpack of the upstream, downstream, chicken, egg conversation for everybody. Not everybody has to figure out all these puzzles to heal, right? I mean, my job clinically is to deal with the more complex cases and run labs and get baselines and get these people improved and to lead the way for them and kind of demystify it for them. But ultimately, most people can start learning about this stuff and not have to stress about what came first. If they start nourishing the gut and the feelings, because the body's interconnected You don't really have to always know that. Sometimes you can start to untangle it regardless just by dealing with both sides of that coin.
0: So true. So many people just want a pill that overnight is going to fix them. But having like off-balance hormones, that's a big complex thing of gut issues and emotion issues and all these things that you're talking about. So um, thank you for sharing all of that. So on your social media, you talk about forest bathing what is that and is that to help stress and to help these emotions
1: yeah so i actually it's a uh one of the tools within the protocol in gut feelings too but I, yeah i've written about it for a long time but because i put i prescribe it for patients right it's like part of my prescription pad in my functional medicine telehealth center because it's out of the research uh, that's coming out of japan and south korea forest bathing that phrase in english May sound weird to people that speak English, right? Me included, but because it sounds like I'm picking up a bathtub, taking it out to the forest, and getting in the bath, you can do that. But ultimately, <laughs> that's not what we're talking about. Forest bathing comes from the Japanese word shinrin yoku, which literally translates as forest bathing to english but don't think about it as a literal bath take think about it as a sensorial bath an immersive bath of the senses of using nature as a meditation using nature as medicine and a meditation because that take going through nature you may only move a couple feet through the forest you can you may just sit down and move nowhere in the forest but it's taking in the forest with your eyesight With smelling it in, breathing it in deeply, with the sounds of it, all that sort of cathartic sort of sound medicine, sight medicine, scent medicine of nature has been shown in research to lower inflammation, to regulate the nervous system in a positive way, in, in many different ways. One researcher looking at the essential oils that are released from the plants uh, in the forest has a immune system modulating effect, meaning it lowers inflammation. It helps to regulate uh, the immune system in a positive way. One study done on children that did a forest bathing class showed that the children had higher levels of a specific type of colony of bacteria. The kids that did the forest bathing class, they basically had better bacterial diversity of the specific type of bacteria that has, that helps to produce serotonin, i.e. improving the mood of the kid because their second brain, i.e. their gut was improved just by breathing in and being around of the microbiome of nature. So there's so many things and doctors that are looking at this are actually prescribing this, conventional doctors are prescribing this to their patients in Japan and South Korea.
0: So basically just spending time out in nature, whether that's hiking or swimming in a lake or skiing, all different things, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, yes, it is. It can be that. But I would say as it's more about the journey and not the destination. Right. So it's it's not so much about just hiking for the sake of it, because people can get caught up in their minds or listening to like music on their phones. They're listening to a podcast. If you're listening to this podcast right now on your I'm not saying turn off the podcast right now, but on a separate time, you may want it to just go in complete stillness like there's even some place for what I would call grounding or earthing and going barefoot if it's safe in the where you're at and walking slowly through nature just in complete silence. There are local groups where you could see in your local town or city or wherever you're at that whole forest bathing classes you could actually do it with a group but it's complete silence it's not like a sort of i like the american mind is sort of like get through do the hike like get the x amount of miles in that's great too that's great too i'm not saying that's not good but that's there this is a bit of a different sensorial immersive meditation approach
0: gotcha it's the meditation the mindfulness the stillness things like that okay that makes sense so another thing that you talk about on your social media that I want to ask you about is shame flammation. Mm-hmm. Tell me what that is and why you talk about that.
1: That's a major part of gut feelings because it's a major part of a concept that I've talked to patients about for the past 13 years. Shame, these mental, emotional, spiritual things, and how it impacts physical health, i.e., shame, inflammation. How does things like shame impact inflammation? And shame, I find to be a very common emotion that is tied to things like trauma and things like chronic stress and people's relationship with their body and their relationship with food. Shame is sort of this, this through way, this third tie between all of these things. People feel varying degrees of. Shame. Even when you're talking about chronic stress, people may think, well, what's the connection with shame there? When people are chronically stressed, they'd feel like they're not a good enough mom, they're not a good enough partner, they're snapping at their kids, they're irritable, they're not able to. To do all the things they they know they quote unquote ought to do because they're stressed. Their resilience is down. There's shame there, and then obviously on top of that, maybe they're not eating the way that they 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 know love. They, it's not most ideal eating because they're on the go and they're stressed. There's a lot of shame about that too. So shame inflammation is a massive problem of how things like our mental state. How does our how does our thoughts, words, and emotions how do the how does that impact our body. Our thoughts and words and emotions are literally stored in ourselves. Our body is like a cellular library, and the thoughts and words and emotions are the books that fill up that library. So it's starting to retrain, retrain how we talk about ourselves, how we talk to ourselves, what are the things we're taking in on a daily basis? What's the music that we're listening to? What's the podcast we're listening to? What's the people that we're following on social media? All of these things are contributing to this. Again, this FOMO culture that we have, that is really shame is a major part of that. And it's a lot to unpack, but really starting to look at the areas of our life that are contributing to the sympathetic fight or flight stress state. And I talk a lot about in the book, um, the research around self-compassion. And self-compassion in many ways is a massive antidote to shame because instead of you Judging yourself and speaking harshly and saying all these negative things, whether aloud or in your head, it doesn't matter. Starting to cultivate a practice of, of self-compassion, which is a form of meditation, right? It's a form, it's an actual mindfulness practice to start to, sh- to retrain your thoughts, retraining your nervous system to, to go into a place of grace. So that one study looked at um, that the researchers put had people do a stressful thing, which was math and speaking in public, because apparently that's what we hate the most as human <laughs> beings. <laughs> but their interleukin-6 levels, their IL-6 levels were high because their body was stressed out, as I mentioned. Their cortisol was off, trying to bring inflammation levels down. Their interleukin-6, this inflammatory protein was high. But the people that practice self-compassion, had the lowest inflammation levels. On day two, It was the difference was even more stark. The people that didn't practice self-compassion, inflammation was even higher. That shows you that cumulative chronic stress inflamed state that many people were in. But again, the people that practice self-compassion had the lowest. That is the antidote to shame inflammation of starting to shift our thoughts to how can we speak love and healing and grace into our life instead of always judging ourselves.
0: Wow. We could do a whole podcast on that because um, I'm a mom. um, A lot of my friends are moms and we have a lot of shame on a daily basis about how we are raising our kids or what we fed our kids or what we're teaching or how we messed up that day or, you know, so many different things and that so-and-so does it better and -and so-and-so has this. And so are you saying that us shaming ourselves Every day is hurting ourselves, damaging our cells, therefore hurting our health.
1: Yeah, it really is. And that's a heavy topic because then I then people are stressing about shaming and look, this is a lot to unpack. You don't have to be um you don't have to be perfect overnight, right? These things are neural pathways in many ways that have been trained for a lot of our life. So you don't have to be perfect, but what i found is that people are just consistent with the little things that are just consistent with these practices, life, like self-compassion, like breath work, like forest bathing. We can start to modulate our nervous system and our immune system in a positive way where you're not arrived and you're not sort of the Dalai Lama in the next day where you have no shame and you're just full of self-compassion. No, but these are practices every day that you show up for yourself, nourish that parasympathetic every day. So yes, it is serious, something that should be looked at. But again, I think there should be a bubble or that's not a bubble, but a sort of air, a space of grace around these situations to say, look, I probably didn't like learn all this shame stuff by myself anyways. Like this is something the culture and maybe family history really kind of breeds itself over time. And it's our task to undo it.
0: I love that you just said that we need to learn how to uh, nourish our parasympathetic system, because I am talking about nourishing our bodies all the time on my page. But rarely do I say we need to nourish our parasympathetic system. So I absolutely love that. But going back to shame, I just want to say one thing. Like you said, it doesn't have to be some huge meditative practice to get out of the shame I realized years ago when I had little kids that when I started having those shameful thoughts of like oh so and so's better at this or so and so's doing this, I would just simply tell myself, "I'm doing my best, and my best may look different than somebody else's, but I'm doing my best," and it would get me yeah. out of that shamefulness. So it can be as simple as that loving thought to yourself that Absolutely. helps you calm down that um, you know sympathetic system.
1: Absolutely, deep breaths kind words, kind thoughts go a long way. They're like little love notes for your body. And you don't have to be, again, this massive meditation aficionado. You can lean into that right, and really get advanced, but it really doesn't take that. The entry point is quite simple. You just have to be consistent with the simple.
0: I love that so much. Consistent with the simple. That that might be a new tagline I use all the time. Thanks. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Okay. So, I know we've talked a lot about your book. It sounds amazing. In your book, you have a 21-day gut feeling plan. Is that what you've been talking about, how you have 21 things for emotions and 21 things for your gut?
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's a protocol that, again, I basically just curated a protocol for the book that's adapted from protocols that we have for patients for people to explore the different tools for themselves. And again, most of these are free Tools. Forest bathing is completely free. Breath work is completely free. These are just teaching people these practices to stay consistent with the simple again. So um, yeah, it's exactly what it is. And as I say in the book very clearly, when you're talking about trauma, big T trauma and intergenerational trauma and even things like shame and stress, it's not that you're going to be absolved of and you know free of all these things in 21 days. Maybe your body can be, depending on where you're at on that trajectory of healing maybe it is. But for most of us, healing is nonlinear. And my point in making the protocol was to teach people a path that they can stay consistent with the simple over time. So it's just maybe you've picked six, seven things from the protocol that you love the most that you can then be consistent with over time, or keep doing all, all the action items if you want to. But most people, they don't more isn't always better. I just wanted to want them to experiment these different tools and see which ones are the biggest needle movers for them. That's also bio-individuality. Not everybody needs all the tools. Sometimes it's just two or three that, that you really are consistent with. Like maybe it's I talk about the GAPS protocol in the book on the gut side of things, which is the gut and psychology syndrome or gut and physiology syndrome of a food protocol that really involves supporting that gut brain axis using things like soups and stews, things that are almost like pre digested for the body to nourish and giving that gut that that second brain where 75% of inflammation is originating from, giving it it almost that proverbial siesta to repair and to to mend over time. They may just do that food protocol without any other ones and do some breath work and some some somatic practices and that's enough. Um, But I want people to find the tools that are the most effective for their toolbox.
0: I love that it's just bio-individual and everybody will need their own things and they can find what works best for them. This book sounds amazing. Where is it out right now? Like, can people buy it now?
1: Depending when they listen to this, it comes out March 21st. Uh, So it's as of recording this, it's coming out really, really soon. And there's lots of pre-order stuff. So we're we're the three-week online mastermind with myself and Dr. Daniel Amen. Dr. Caroline Leaf, neuroscientist, and Dr. Nicola Perra, who is the holistic psychologist on Instagram. She wrote the foreword actually to the book. So this we're doing a mastermind with myself and some of my colleagues and friends and lots of other free stuff when people pre-order the book.
0: Oh, that's amazing. Those are amazing people you have. So when can they start pre-ordering now?
1: Oh, yeah, right now. And okay. if, they're, if it's after the 21st, we're still gonna have the pre-order stuff go on even after that. Um, but f- they wanna definitely do it soon if it's after the 21st, because it's gonna be, we're gonna close off the mastermind shortly after.
0: And where can they find the book?
1: anywhere that books are sold you can go to amazon you can go to barnes and noble you can go to target.com you can go to indie books support your independent bookstores if you have one in your area so really anywhere but all the links are at drwillcole.com we have the links to all of those as well as all the pre-order campaign you can put your information there to get access to all of the pre-order healthy stuff we have going on
0: well i'm really excited for that book i'm going to read it because it sounds fascinating so thank you Thank you so much for being here today. I know my listeners have learned so much from you. I know they're intrigued to go find you on social media and learn more from you, your wealth of knowledge. I always end my podcast with asking my guests what they have found to be the best ingredient in life. What would you say it is?
1: Wow. I mean, I would say self compassion, a mantra that we have at our clinic is you can't heal a body you hate, you know, and really predicating all of this stuff we're talking about, whether it's eating foods that love us back or doing any practice like this, it shouldn't come of, from a place of shame and obsession and dread. And so it could become what's called orthorexia, which is disordered eating or unhealthy foods. That's the antithesis of sustainable wellness. So one of the best ingredients I could think of is self-compassion.
0: I absolutely love that, that you can't heal a body that you hate. That is an amazing quote. I may quote you on that on my social media.
1: (laughs) It's in the back cover of the book, too, because it's such a major part of my work.
0: Yeah, that is such a good quote. Well, thank you again so much for being here. I have really enjoyed talking to you. And I have so many more questions I could go on for another hour. But thank you for what you did We'll do a part two.
1: We'll do a part two. We should do a
0: part two because we just barely touched upon all the little basics of stress and emotions and trauma and shamefulness, things like that. So we should do a part two. Anytime. Thank you again for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus, get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram.